there's always like a fair number of um like big spikes in mine because I when I set the mic down on the table it always spikes up real high yeah I've got so, a couple big spikes but I'm sure yeah. that that confuses Ben he's fine he'll figure it out yeah he always does he's smart I mean he's smart enough hey be nice to your man why because he's nice and I love him oh all right fine fine but I'm an Aries. And because he he posts our podcasts every week. <laughs> oh yeah, that too. Are you a good witch? Or a bad bitch, bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to ruin your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. One, this quarantine madness is <laughs> really insane and psychologically taking a huge toll yeah. on both of us. We're mm-hmm. not, that doesn't make us special. Everyone's experiencing it. Um, yeah. Two, I was experiencing a lot of drama with a package thief slash drunk ass guy who was yeah. vomiting in our entryway and stealing our packages. And that took up da- days of my time. Um, and three, it was your fucking birthday. <laughs> so happy birthday. Thank you. We took a week Thank off from much. the podcast. <laughs> I took a week off from like reality, um, which was helpful, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I We went to Greenwood Cemetery and I watched a lot of random television. We made birthday cake. And from scratch, you made funfetti cake from scratch. Mm-hmm. Which how do you even do that? You get sprinkles, and you make a vanilla cake, and you put the sprinkles in it. Oh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty simple. That sounds when delightful. You think about it. It's one Thank of my you. favorite. It's one of my favorite types of cake. Anyway, should we um, introduce our podcast? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Welcome. I'm Hannah. I'm Deanna. And uh, this is your weekly podcast about ladies across history. Non-scholarly. Not, we just like to chat and talk about some cool people we discovered that week. Yeah. It sounds good. Please and don't uh, cite us as a source in your thesis paper because it will <laughs> not be a valid one. <laughs> no, but you can maybe use some of the sources that we cite uh, when we give our sources at the beginning of these yeah use it as a jumping off point yes um i wrote i wrote a lot of notes on my person today so i'm thinking just dive right in just like dive right in i'm so excited Um, i missed you so much it's been so long uh, since i've looked at your face and i can't wait to hug you in person Oh my god. I've been like dreaming about FaceTiming you just so I could see you. This is like <laughs> what the fifth episode that we've done over FaceTime? Yeah. Because it's think week so. it's week six of quarantine for me. Oh my god. It's just fucking a time is nothing. Time means nothing. What is time? I don't even know. Me either. But you know, this could be week twenty for all I for all I know. Yeah, I saw I saw somebody say something about like all 85 years of March and now we're in day 253 <laughs> yeah. of April. <laughs> yep, that's how it feels. That is how it feels. 
but hopefully my person will bring some lightness to the day and the days of others listening to this. I just did um, some wine pouring ASMR. F- FYI. Ooh, sexy. Mm-hmm. I like it. I'm going to be doing that too in a minute. Oh. That's I my, can hear that in my headphone. That's my bubbly, sparkling water that I'm adding to I make like this it. a wine spritzer because I'm being a basic bitch today. You're being a quarantined bitch and it's okay. Mm-hmm. You are valid. Thank you. Your cocktails are valid. Thank you. You're welcome. I do want to hear about your person. I'm really excited. Us taking off a week. Like sometimes when we need to go on hiatus, I miss you. But like the the work <laughs> yeah. of the podcast, I'm like, ah, oh, it's nice to take a break. But I'm like excited to hear about a lady. Like except I'm like, please tell me. I think it's because my brain is so quarantine brain. Not yeah. unstimulated. That's the wrong word. But anyway. You know. I don't know. I, I've, I'm feeling that. And I think that's maybe why my notes ended up a little bit longer than usual, too, is because I was, like, just finding all sorts of cool shit about this person because I was letting myself take the time to just get absorbed. Right. Um, which I haven't necessarily felt like I could do right. in the first couple of weeks of quarantine where it's just like my brain was mush. Um, so, yeah. But I think this person will be... Um, refreshing for everybody too who's just kind of you know they're at home and they're tired and sick of everything um so let's do it yeah so my sources today are wikipedia biography.com smithsonian mag um an article by ruth reichel right reichel in smithsonian mag uh an article by helen rossner in new yorker and the taste of home.com (laughs) okay yes yes so i've been doing a lot of cooking and baking at home and i think a lot of us oh my god (laughs) and it made me uh think about some other people who did a lot of cooking in their homes are you gonna talk about julia child today (laughs) i'm talking about julia child today oh my god (laughs) i'm so excited have you watched her before? No, I mean, Have I've seen, seen I've seen some of her uh, cooking instructive sort okay, of good. videos. So I know she has quite the personality. I know she's very tall. Yeah. And I think she has like um like some sort of subterfuge in her life. Potentially. <laughs> maybe. Maybe we'll talk about that. But that's about all um, I know. But I love I was if you had not seen anything of hers i was gonna make you pause and watch a little clip of her but you know you know who i'm talking about so if there's anyone who doesn't know i think you should stop and watch a clip of julia child cooking on youtube so that you know who i'm talking about because imagining her is is so much easier when you just when you have that visual reference um but yes so to begin Julia Child was an American cooking teacher. She was an author, a television personality, and um, not necessarily a spy, but she did some spy-adjacent work. Aha, Um, okay. Yeah. She's recognized for bringing French cuisine to the American public with her debut cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and her subsequent television programs, most notably... Uh, the French Chef, which premiered in 1963. 
Um, so there was a, an article by Cynthia Zarin in The New Yorker that I, I took a little piece from because I really liked what she had to say here. She writes, uh, one of the most significant meals of the last century occurred almost 73 years ago on November 3rd, 1948. When Paul and Julia Child, two years wed, arrived in, I'm sorry, Deanna, I'm going to butcher all of the French words in this. Please. Le, ha- Le Havre? Le Havre. Le Havre? Havre. Uh, Havre on the SS America from New York. They were on their way to Paris. Paul Child, a, c- a career civil servant, had been offered a job as an exhibits officer for the United States Information Service, a now defunct division of the State Department. Their baggage included a Buick station wagon, nicknamed the Blue Flash. They packed themselves into the car and drove south to Rouen, where Julia Child ate her first French meal at La Couronne, then the oldest restaurant in France. Paul ordered the meal, oysters, followed by Sol Munier, Salade Verte, Verte. uh, wine Verte, Wine, fromage blanc, and black coffee. <laughs> du café Julia noir. Child, <laughs> yeah, they wrote black coffee, so I'm going with that. Because there's no way I'm going to try and... Oh God. Well, you know the word café. That's true. That means um, coffee. Julia Child would later say, it was the most important meal of my life. From then on, she was all in. But I want to back up a little bit. Before we get to that point, because while we know Julia Child is a chef and a lover of good food and butter, um, she lived an entire fascinating life before she ever picked up a whisk. So she's another one of those people that I've that I'm I've chosen without realizing that, like, she was well into her 30s and almost 40 before she actually, like, had any career as a as a cook. (sighs) So. Yeah, I, I love I, just, I love these ones that we do that are I do too. They find their she, passion in their niche later. Yeah, she reminds me a bit of um, the Girl Scout. Was it Juliet Mor- Morgan? Gordon Lowe. Ju- uh, yeah, Juliet Gordon Lowe. Thank you. Who Juliet Morgan yeah, she kind was of, the architect. Thank you. I'm. We've talked about so many women. I, I know. Mix them I, all up believe constantly. me, I know. But it's only because I lived in Savannah. That's right. Also, you're better with names. But yeah, Juliet Gordon-Lowe was one of our previous episodes, and she was... Um, About a year ago. Yeah, she was a leader in the Girl Scouts, and she too was a personality. She just had this this outlandish personality that everyone loved, but she also had a career that blossomed much later in life. Right. Um, but anyway, I'm I'm going off on a tangent, so... Julia was born Julia Carolyn McWilliams on August 15th in 1912 uh, in Pasadena. I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. Pasadena, California? Pasadena, California. Um, Her father managed a large chunk of land and her mother was an heiress to a modest paper company. Dunder Mifflin? interesting. I have no idea. I did not know. No. But I didn't look it up. (laughs) Um, She grew up. So, like, she grew up not, you know, astoundingly rich, but she was well off. They they had they had money. She did okay. Enough she was money. Comfortable. She did okay. They had enough money that she, her mom didn't have to cook. They hired a chef. And oh, oh, okay. All, yeah, that, that's all the food a little more that, than comfortable. Yeah, it's like she was not a billionaire, but they were pl- 
plenty, plenty comfy. Um, but yeah, she just, she'd always had her meals cooked for her. She didn't really ever question it or think about food beyond that. Um, and she went to private school, like they could afford private school for her. And she was very good at sports, um, at six feet, two inches tall. I knew she was fucking crazy (laughs) tall. Yeah. Especially for when she was born. Like, are you kidding me? She towered over most men, I think, at that time. Yeah. Including her husband. Um, Ah, I love that. I know. I love that. It's one of my favorite things. It's there. The pictures of them are so cute. But anyway, so yeah, six feet, two inches tall. She played a lot of tennis, golf and basketball. Um, she, yeah, she played a lot of basketball when she attended Smith College, from which she graduated in 1934 with a major in history. And after that, she was like, okay, what do I do with this major in history? What do I do with my life? I, she had not succeeded in, you know, finding a husband, which is what you were supposed to be doing at the time in college. Yeah. Um, so she ended up in New York for a bit, sharing in an apartment with two friends, writing ad copy. Uh, I love this quote from her. She said, I was a Republican until I got to New York and had to live on $18 a week. It was then that I became a Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) LOL. (laughs) LOL. When the war effort booted up, she was like, oh, okay, that's my ticket to adventure. Like, I'm tired of being bored. She had gone back to Pasadena to take care of her ailing mother. Um, So she was just like, she was there. She was just kind of hanging out, bored out of her skull. She was already into her 30s by this time and getting restless. But at six feet, two inches tall, she was apparently too tall for the Women's Auxiliary Corps, the WAC. Really? Yeah, they wouldn't let her in because she was too tall. That makes zero sense to me. I know. I think, I feel like my best guess was that there was like a regulation uniform and that they didn't make it in a certain size. <laughs> and that and that they just didn't make it Give tall enough. Give her pants, put her in a men's uniform. Yeah, I don't really get it because those, those uniforms were patterned off of the male uniforms anyway. Oh yeah, they, presumably they were pants, never mind. So, but I don't what? know. Okay. What? I don't know, but... She was too tall. And and same for the Navy um, waves, which stood for women accepted for volunteer emergency services. <laughs> so she couldn't be in either of them. And she was determined to be involved. So she soon began a career, you know, career as a file clerk, basically, with the OSS. And the OSS stands for Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor for the CIA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So she was a typist at their headquarters in Washington. But because of her education and her experience, she was given more more responsibility and um, was placed into a position as a top secret researcher working directly for the head of the OSS. Oh. And yeah, pretty like big jump from like not being allowed into wax at all to like starting in the OSS and then being promoted almost immediately. But uh, in 1944, she was posted to Kandy, Ceylon, which was now Sri Lanka, where her responsibilities included, quote, registering, cataloging, and channeling a great volume of highly classified communications. (laughs) Of course, they have to say that in the vaguest way possible. Right. 
Um, she was later posted to Kunming, China, where she received the emblem of meritorious civilian service as head of the registry of the OSS Secretariat. <laughs> ah, that's a mouthful. Say it one more time. Sorry. <laughs> she re- No, I know. She received the emblem of meritorious civilian service as head of the registry of the OSS Secretariat. Okay. <laughs> Um, at one point yeah at one point she was asked to help solve the OSS's OSS's shark problem like literal sharks literal sharks so too many uh, OSS explosives which were targeting German U-boats were being set off by sharks oh oh yeah oh oh, no yeah it's really upsetting on multiple levels it's so bad and so they were like, okay, we need some kind of shark repellent. Uh, Julia, you, help us figure it out. Help us repel these Those sharks. poor babies. I know, but she did it. She basically, she like cooked up a bunch of experimental concoctions that ended up, at least one of them was very effective. And whatever that repellent was, it's still in use today. So yeah, she was, uh, she received an award that cited her many virtues, uh, her drive and inherent cheerfulness. And her file was declassified in 2008, so you can still find it online if oh, no you kidding. are, yeah, if you want to go look at it. But um, yeah, that is that is who she was before she met Paul Child and became a chef. So b- bananas, b- yeah. b- bananas. I agree. Uh, while in Kunming, she met Paul, Paul Child also an OSS employee, and the two were married September 1st, 1946 in Pennsylvania. Uh, they later moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, a New Jersey native who had lived in Paris as an artist and poet, apparently, Paul was known for his sophisticated palate, and he introduced his wife to fine cuisine, such as that first meal that we talked about in mm-hmm. the opening of this mm-hmm. episode. He joined the United States Foreign Service, and in 1948, the couple moved to Paris, where the U.S. State Department assigned Paul there as an exhibits officer with the U.S. Information Agency. So it's funny to me about a lot of the articles who talk about her from this point on is they describe her as having that first meal in France and having this revelation about food and wanting to go cook and then immediately signing up for cooking school at the famed Cordon Bleu in France. Um, What they don't tend to say is that she signed up for a morning class at the Cordon Bleu, taught entirely in French and attended entirely by American soldiers on the GI Bill. What? So it was like, it was not, she didn't enroll in school, in culinary school to like be a chef. She just wanted to know how to like cook, period. And they were offering this class to American GIs. And because she she and her husband were in like military service, this class was available to them. Wow. And Yeah. <laughs> So everyone makes it sound like it was this like crazy fancy thing, but actually she was there with a bunch of soldiers just by to learn how to cook. Just to learn how to cook entirely in French. And so she had to learn French pretty quick too. Yeah, just like Julia um, Morgan, so that's funny. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny <laughs> that I made Academy that flip. Um 
But still, this is where her love affair with food really did start. And later she studied privately with other master chefs. She said in 1952, I have finally found a real and satisfying profession, which will keep me busy well into the year 2000. (laughs) That's cute. I was like, that's so specific, but I like it. Um, She met her soon-to-be very good friend, Simone Beck, during this time as well. And Simone Beck is, I believe, another French chef. And Simone was writing a French cookbook for Americans. They decided to work together because Julia was obviously uniquely qualified to advise on making the book appealing for Americans and translating the French into English. Oh, this this is a French woman. Yeah, Simone Beck was, was French, wanted to wanted to create a cookbook about French cuisine that would be but her audience would primarily be Americans who were learning for the first time about French cuisine and so she became friends with Julia and it was kind of like oh well you're the perfect person to help me do this and um, yeah and so they started working on this book together um Smithsonian Mag, the the article from Smithsonian Mag said, in one of the greatest blunders in publishing history, which I appreciated, Houghton Mifflin rejected the book, ultimately, as too formidable, because it was huge. It was, I mean, it was like almost a a thousand page cookbook. Okay. Um, What? Yeah. They just thought it was dense and they didn't think Americans would read it or or try any recipes out of it. So they they rejected it. They severely underestimated what American housewives were doing at the time. Yeah. Housewives? Yeah. Housewives. Housewives. <laughs> Deanna yeah. Gave. But still at the time, it was a big blow. And because by the time Paul, her husband, left the diplomatic corps in 1961, she had been working on what would become this book for nine years. So they Jesus. worked on this book for like almost a decade before Houghton Mifflin rejected it. Oh, my and God. Yeah. And so they were kind of hoping it would go somewhere. And when it didn't, the couple ended up moving to Cambridge, Massachusetts, with like basically no money and very few expectations. Um, Julia told a friend, we shall be living quite modestly, but I figure if I can give two cooking lessons a week at about $40 a throw, that will bring a tidy sum. Yeah, sure. So she was just time. like, <laughs> yeah, she was just like, I'll teach cooking and that'll have to help us get by. Because my husband, other than being like a US diplomat, is an artist. And that's kind of like what he does. What's so his that's art? Not, Did you say yet? He was a poet and I don't know what else. A photographer. He has he has some really great photography. Um, but I don't know that he ever made a ton of money doing that. But I could be putting my foot in my mouth by saying that. Maybe he was super famous. I have no idea. Again, not a scholarly podcast. And wow. I was focusing I, I on Julia. yelled that into the mic. <laughs> I was focusing on Julia, so I wasn't too too worried about looking him up, but... Um, exactly. Yeah. So, to save money, I love this, Paul designed the kitchen in in their new house in Cambridge on his own because she needed a kitchen that would be functional for her teaching lessons and cooking endeavors and and testing out recipes for this cookbook like she needed something that she could do all of those things in that was like a chef's kitchen yeah 
but they didn't have the money to like get one designed or put in and so he designed the whole thing himself cute and it was this was especially useful because his wife was so fucking tall that she <laughs> needed tall countertops <laughs> <laughs> Which I never thought about that. Yeah. I'm only two inches shorter than her. Apparently, most normal countertops are 36 inches high, and she needed at least 38 inch high countertops. Damn. And he has pictures of her stooping in their tiny European kitchens. Um, One picture that he took in their Paris kitchen shows her stirring a pot that is almost at her knees. Like, this counter is so low. Yeah. That it's just like impossible. Europe is small. I mean, yeah. I just mean human things because they're so old. Everything is small. Yeah. So he designed this perfect kitchen for her, and it was so sweet, and everything had a place, and it was it was like the best place. And um, actually, now the kitchen, in its entirety, is available. Like they moved it to the Smithsonian Museum. Really? So so her kitchen lives on in the Smithsonian Museum. Um, but yeah, so the book was finally accepted by a publisher named Knopf in 1961. And the 726-page Mastering the Art of French Cooking was a bestseller and received critical acclaim that derived in part from the American interest in French culture in the early 1960s. Because they were kind of obsessed. Um, it also had helpful illustrations and precise attention to detail. And uh, the review said that it made fine cuisine accessible. So Which the book is, is actually still. Yeah. And the book is Even still today. in print. Yeah. So it, it really is like kind of a major um, achievement. Uh, following the success, Child wrote magazine articles and a regular column for the Boston Globe newspaper. Um, she would go on to publish nearly 20 titles under her name and with others. Where was she Many, living? Many. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right. Okay. Right. So yeah, she Harvard. was in, she was in Massachusetts and, um, her career from this point would launch out of Boston. Whoop. So, so yeah, um, she would go on to publish nearly 20 titles under her name and with others. And many, though not all, were related to her television shows. So, I love this. No one thought to give Julia Child a television show until she was invited to promote her cookbook on a public access show where books were reviewed called I've Been Reading. And to everyone's surprise, she didn't talk about the book. She made an omelet. (laughs) And they were just like... What is she doing? And she Iconic, was like, well, I'm really. showing you. I'm showing yeah, you like, that I'm I cook. showing you. If you want to know more about me, you know that I write a book. Suck it. Yep. Yep. And if you have ever watched Julia Child, you know what fun she is to watch just in general. Yeah. And um, yeah, she totally charmed the audience. And following their enthusiastic response, she was invited back to tape her own cooking series on that show. Oh, my God. Yeah. Which led to the launch of her own show on that public access network called oh my The French god. Chef. Oh my god. And this made Julia the first woman to have her own cooking show. Were there men with cooking shows before that? Must have been. There must have been. But she was the first woman who was who was um cooking on TV I in nineteen sixty three. Utterly mind blowing. Even today. 
that it persists that cooking in the home is considered a woman's job, but cooking as a profession is dominated by male chefs. Mm-hmm. And women are not taken seriously even in yeah. in the professional yeah. chef world. It's insane. I mean, you have yeah. what you have like Giada, Rachel Ray. Yeah, like I'm they no exist expert, more but they, they more, exist but... because they have to be like friendly. Like I'm a housemaker, which I guess that's kind of Julia Child's thing. But weird that it yeah. hasn't evolved. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's or as you it's look at Gordon of, Ramsay, it's a weird world. And you think about like how it was a woman who sort of transformed the American relationship to cooking and yeah. food, and and made fine cuisine accessible to Americans. Yeah, and yet being a chef is still a masculine pursuit Isn't somehow. it weird how that works? When yeah. you monetize something, suddenly it becomes male? Mm-hmm. Weird. I don't understand. <laughs> so strange. So weird. So random. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, so Julia, she was, ugh, she was so cool. She thought everyone should be able to cut up their own chicken, she thought that everyone should get their hands dirty and really touch and enjoy the ingredients that they were using, which was kind of revelatory for uh, an American, an America who was used to having a lot of meals made with canned things. You know, there was a lot of fruit cocktail and a lot of canned string beans and there, blah, blah, blah. There were legitimate, like, savory gelatin salads. Yeah, awful, awful <laughs> shit. She wasn't a fan. She was like, I want whole fresh ingredients. And then she used those whole fresh ingredients to make cooking fun, which was like, what a concept, (laughs) Um, you know? And what was so funny about her shows is like, that was a time when they didn't have so much in-camera editing or they they didn't do a ton of editing on these like you know, reality-based shows after the fact. And so that's one of the reasons why we see so many of her blunders. You know, we see her flip the pancake off the pan and onto the floor. And we see all of the little mistakes that she makes because they didn't really have a way to edit them out. And it just added to her charm. Yeah, Yeah, it just added to everything she was offering. And it made people realize again that it was accessible that like oh okay i can make mistakes and i it's can not, fuck up sometimes too you know yeah it's not a problem um she said doing television you want amusing things something fun and unusual i think also on the television you want to do things loud people love the whamming noises <laughs> whamming noises <laughs> whamming noises she just <laughs> she was just like people are simple and they just like to be amused and so that's what she did Um, So like her cookbook, the show succeeded in changing the way Americans related to food while establishing her as a local celebrity. They filmed in her kitchen, in part because it had been designed entirely for her, to her requirements. And shortly after her show started in Boston, it was syndicated to 96 stations throughout America. Holy shit. Yeah, It, it went, it exploded really fast. So we talked about Julia becoming famous not only for making food fun, but also being relatable, especially her on-screen mishaps. But I wanted to mention this little thing because I just liked it. Um, She had one rule, never apologize. She said, if you're alone in the kitchen, which she said in an episode of The French Chef while she was hastily scooping fallen bits of potato pancake back in her pan. (laughs) 
If you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see you? So she worked nearly until her death at almost 92 years old in 2004. And so she, she went was on to sing up until the year 2000. Yeah. Yeah, oh. she was she knew. She was like I'm going to I'm going to get there. And she did. And she went on to produce a stunning number of books and television shows. She is largely responsible for the fact that food is now part of American popular culture. And although she passed away in 2004, her influence keeps growing, which we've seen through um, the movie Julie and Julia, which came out a few years ago with Meryl Streep. And it's and isn't it based off of a memoir anyway? Maybe it's based off of actually fun fact. It's based off of a blog that Julia Child actually really hated. Oh, yeah. So this woman named Julia, this blogger named Julia, I can't remember her or sorry, Julie. I can't remember her last name. Um, started a blog where she decided she was going to try and do every recipe out of Julia Child's cookbook over the course of a year. And that she was going to like cook one to, you know, X amount of these recipes every day just so that she could say she did all the recipes in this cookbook. And Julia really hated that because she was like, food should be fun. You're making you made this it a into job. a chore. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're turning this into a stunt. And I I just don't like that. And so when they were, when talk was kind of swirling about trying to approach Julia maybe about, you know, um, endorsing the, the movie being made and um, giving it high praise. She was like, nah. No, thanks. No, thanks. I'm not into that project. Also, um, Meryl Streep, yeah. fantastic actress, not six foot two. <laughs> not six foot two. She is significantly shorter than me. I know because I, did, I met her. Yeah, I enjoyed her her. I enjoyed her Julia Child. I'm sure um, she could do a I great liked, Julia Child. I think Dan Aykroyd's is better. I'm going to have to show you the, the SNL sketch that Dan Aykroyd did. And I think it was like 78 or something where he one of his characters was Julia Child. And he basically like he's, you know, roasting a chicken at home or something and ends up like chopping off his thumb but it's because he's julia child he's just like oh ho, ho, well we just keep going with the recipe like everything's fine and this is for snl yeah mm-hmm. it's the best thing ever mm-hmm. um but anyway i did want to also mention just a little bit because i found a great article about her politics so i kind of wanted to talk about that because she was raised as, as a republican as i mentioned but she became much more progressive after leaving california and living around the world. And so this uh, New Yorker article is titled The Passionate Progressive Politics of Julia Child, and it's by Helen Rossner. I think it's an excerpt from her book about Julia. And she wrote, Child's political awakening came during the McCarthy era when she and Paul looked on in horror and rage as their friends and colleagues were subjected to the degradation of anti-communist paranoia. In a 1991 interview with the journalist Jewel Fenzi, Child recalled when McCarthy's deputies Roy Cohn and G. David Shine arrived in Europe in 1953 for an 18-day tour intended to root out sedition. Uh, She said, we had quite quite a number of people who were just ruined by them. Um, In a letter to her longtime friend Avis Devoto, she spoke with characteristic gallows humor. 
I am terribly worried about McCarthyism, even more so than ever. How could the State Department uh, back down on that order about the left-wing material? I'm not sure what she's talking about. And then she makes, I think she makes up a word here. What pusillan, pu, no, pusillanimosity? And I tried to look it up and Google was like, are you sure that's a word? Pusillanimosity? animosity pusillanimous pusillanimous yeah which uh weird um uh men's rights activists try to say is the basis for the word pussy we're like don't be a pussy and they're like it's based on pussy it's not it's not sexist it's based off this word idiots and it's like yeah but i don't think that's what most men are that's not what they're saying though yeah that's incorrect But what she's saying is like, what cowardice? How cowardly? What can I do as an individual? It is frightening. I'm ready to bare my breasts, small cup size though they be. <laughs> stick out my neck. I won't turn my back on anybody. I'll sacrifice my cat, cookbook, husband, and finally self. Please advise. I'm serious. Also, which let's not let's not um, coast over the fact that Roy Cohn was a huge piece of shit. Um, exactly. Who was Trump's like uh, influence? <laughs> Huge piece of shit. Huge. Well, it's one of the reasons I kind of wanted to bring this up, only only because I had kind of forgotten that she lived through the McCarthy era. Yeah. And that she watched this shit happen. She watched all of that fucking red listing or whatever they called it. You know, she was working in media at the time by this point and had friends in media who lost their careers, who lost you know, any ability to work ever again in in media because of this shit, because of, you know, quote unquote, the scary communism. <sighs> and I just I think it's an interesting facet of who she was, because these are things that don't come through on her cooking shows. You know, they don't they're not things she can talk about while she's deboning a chicken. Right. But they're things she's passionate about. And um, over the years, as she became more comfortable with her fame, she spoke more openly about her political beliefs, especially her support for Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know. And in 1982, she authored a pledge letter for Planned Parenthood sent to donors nationwide, which read, few politicians will take the risk of publicly supporting either contraception or abortion. And who is for abortion anyway? We are concerned with freedom of choice. In the 80s. Um, Yeah. And that same year, she traveled to Memphis, Tennessee to lead a series of cooking classes to raise money for Planned Parenthood. Holy shit. Yeah. And she was faced every day with a small group of anti-abortion activists protesting her participation. She said about one incident in a 1989 interview Every time they appeared, they'd have little babies in their arms and signs saying, if you had your way, I wouldn't have been born. There were only 10 in all, but every time they appeared, they'd be photographed and put on television. Just because they were there, it was news. Wow. We, who are pro-women's rights, must do a great deal more to get our views across. And it was making, reading that was making me think about all of those, like, reopen the economy you know protests happening one of the my least favorite signs that i saw was some young woman holding up a sign with a uh, mask on it like a a face mask that said my body my choice trump 2020 Uh uh-huh and i was like 
Uh-huh. That correlation is completely false, you fucking idiot. That has right. It's about keeping other people healthy, you asshole. Mm-hmm. You, if you want to do a, a your body, your choice thing, that d- it doesn't correlate at all. What the fuck are I you know. talking about? You look so dumb. Oh, my God. I know. Ugh. It's baffling. It's so baffling. And it's just interesting to hear, like, to see Julia Child talking about how, like, the only reason these people have a media presence at all is because the media has chosen to give them one. Otherwise, they wouldn't have turned into a huge protest. You know, these... Like, the more we should... The more we give them the spotlight and take the spotlight away from, like, actual issues, the more we make it seem like their protest is, like, normal and fine. But anyway, so I thought the, the, you know, correlation was interesting. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm just. Uh, I actually just recently read an article about how it it their tr- the um, conservative activist family behind the quote unquote grassroots anti quarantine Facebook events. Um, it's like one person. It, it's a family, um, mm. and presumably they have a lot of money. I haven't actually read all the way through it, but it like just recently popped up. Um, That's fun. Yeah. Uh, Oh, they bring in hundreds of thousand dollars annually by antagonizing establishment conservative leaders and activists. Great. Cool. That's fun. Cool. Um, but yeah. So at the time of at the time of that interview, George H.W. Bush had just assumed the presidency. Cool. Yeah, super fun. The administration seemed uninterested in doing anything about the environment, Child said in an interview, adding These people are anti-abortion, but they're not doing anything for the future. She went on, if we go on as we are, polluting everything, we may very well end up like Venus, a great ball of fire. Holy shit. I don't think we have very much time. I love her. I know. I know. What the fuck? Um, Yeah. She was like, she was fucking incredible. And it's, it's kind of amazing to me that she was a woman who had a cooking show that was designed to you know really like help housewives learn how to cook better while at the same time harboring very feminist and progressive ideals that she acted on you know she donated tons of money to Planned Parenthood and progressive institutions and um, spent a lot of her time thinking about ways to support those causes and she never had any kids did she no she never had any kids Mm. for someone named child she never had any (laughs) um but i thought i would end with a couple of fun random facts because i loved these and didn't know where to put them so the end seemed appropriate please According to PBS, Child used a whopping 753 pounds of butter during the time she filmed Baking with Julia. Oh, my God. That program aired just four seasons. Oh. So it's a pretty impressive amount of of butter. (laughs) I wonder wonder how that stacks up next to Paula Deen's numbers. Oh, God, I wonder. Paula Deen probably, like, in part was encouraged by Julia. Surely. Except um, for, you know, she's a racist. Yeah. <laughs> God. Um, Julia loved roses, and she has a variety named after her. Oh. Yeah. Fittingly, her rose is the color of melted butter, one of her favorite ingredients. Um, 
Yeah. She donated her... Oh, I already think I... I think I already said this one, but just in case. She donated her kitchen and kitchen tools to the Smithsonian. And you can view the exhibit, which is called Bon Appetit, at the Smithsonian. And um, that's it. That's all I've got on Julia Child, the amazing French-style chef and first woman chef on TV and progressive badass and super spy and, you know... There's All so much incredible I did person. not know. I know. I just knew her voice. They're like, oh, let's go. <laughs> that sort of well, thing. She, she can kind of fool you into thinking that she's a little bit nutty. Like she's a little bit of a, you know, ooh. But she's actually really fucking smart and really passionate. Nutty people can be very smart, Hannah. Well, fair enough. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. Do you want to hear some on this day? I sure as shit do. I just pulled a couple because... A lot of them were war-related, and I didn't hey, want to, you know, read about that. So, on this day, April 22nd, uh, in 1056, the supernova Crab Nebula is last seen by the naked eye. Whoa. Which is crazy to think that there was ever a nebula seen by the naked eye. No fucking kidding. But I thought that was cool. Um... 1934, the U.S. Division of Investigation, later the FBI, under Melvin Purvis, botch an operation to capture the Don Dillinger gang uh, in Wisconsin with two dead and four injured. Cool. (laughs) Which I was like, oh, that that John Dillinger, that Depression era shit. Oh, yeah. Um, 1969, the first human eye transplant is performed. Whoa. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, 1972, Apollo astronauts John Young and Charles Duke ride on the moon. Nice. Uh, 1976, Barbara Walters becomes the first nightly network news anchor on the Today Show. Oh. And that is all I picked. That's all she wrote? That's all she wrote. That is it. It for this week. Well done. Deanna, tell me what you're excited about. I have a couple things. Yeah. Now that we're in this um, time of media consumption. Indeed. Okay, so what I'm excited about. First, we have uh, plowed through. I finally, I'm way behind on this train, but I finally got through the first two seasons of uh, the TV series Fargo. Okay. And yep. we're about to watch the third season. And it is so so good and so violent so if you're opposed to watching very violent shows 
not a show for you, but the writing is so smart and the cast is so great. And um, Alison Tolman is in season one. She plays a really significant role and she is such a freaking good actress. And um, yeah. she comes from uh, Steppenwolf is like where she cut her teeth, apparently. In Chicago. It's a theater company in Chicago that's uh, ah. like where Philip Seymour Hoffman got his start and stuff like that. Oh. Like really good actors come out of there. Wow. Um, but so it, it's just very good and very smart. And um, I just love the the accents. <laughs> like, oh, hun. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, Fargo. Oh. Okay. Oi, we're in Fargo what now. What are you eh? doing over there? Okay. Um, <laughs> that sort of thing. So very good. Came out in like 2014. So but it's on hulu it's on hulu in its entirety i think right yeah and season Almost. four looks amazing and it's supposed to start um sometime this year it was supposed to start this month but quarantine got it pushed um and, so- and it's historic no the new season no i mean well oh yeah it's a period piece oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah it's a period oh piece. yeah and chris rock is in it and jason schwartzman is in the new season it looks really good. It looks I haven't watched really any funny. of Fargo, but I'm excited about that season. I would highly recommend the show, period. Um, season one is just one of the the best written shows, I've, like like complete seasons, because each season, it's, it's kind of an anthology, sort of, because it's different. Right. There are connections throughout, but it's not. But they're kind of contained. Season one is in 06, and then season two is in 79. And um, okay, but but Allison Tolman's dad is like the main character of season two. Oh, one of them. But then Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons are in. Anyway, it's just really good. Billy Bob Thornton is in season one. Martin Freeman is in season one. Um, I love him. One of the Carradines, I forget which one plays the dad. Um, uh, Colin Hanks is in it. It's oh. it's it's really good. Uh, Adam um, Goldberg. Goldberg? Yeah, Adam Goldberg. And yeah, Key and Peele are in season one. But it's it's a show that is surprisingly forward thinking, I think, for its casting and its writing. Because so far, I've only watched two seasons. But in both seasons, they have cast um, disabled actors. Um, in season one, there's a deaf actor and he has a deaf character because the character's deaf. So I was like, is that actually a deaf actor? And it fucking is. And then in season That's two, awesome. there's a character who has, I think, cerebral palsy. He has like some sort of um, thing happening with his arm. And since I have yeah. a, a family member who has cerebral palsy, that's what it struck me as. But I haven't looked into it. But it's like not a big deal. It's not like a huge part of the plot. They just include disabled performers in it. Whoa, what a concept. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, they don't sell anything. Okay. Cool. Okay. Um, but it's really good. And Jean Smart is in season two and looks literally exactly like my grandma um, on my dad's side, which is trippy because she's like a mob boss. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, and then the second thing I'm excited about, uh, we ordered, continuing uh, with your local board game nerd over here, um, we ordered a, uh, it's like a companion board game to Mixtape Massacre, which I don't know if I've talked about on the podcast. Yes. But yes, um, I think you that's have. like the one where you're all serial killers competing for the most kills. But the, the companion game is called Escape from Tall Oaks, and you're all the survivors trying to get out of town. Like you have some tasks <laughs> you have to complete, and then like slashers uh, come and try and kill you. And oh my God. <laughs> it's really fun. Alex and I played it yesterday. Um, and there was actually a lot more to do in the uh, Escape from Tall Oaks because the the tasks that you're set with are 
this sort of like side quest that you have to do before you can win. So, and it's co-op until it's not. Because you all have and to cooperate people, to get the tasks done. For people in quarantine who are looking for board games. It's I'm two sure to six like... players. So if you have two people, you can play this game. Oh, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks. I like it. Yay. Yay. It's nice to have things that we're excited about in quarantine. Yeah. Definitely. Who knew it was possible? Because my brain is broken. Yeah, we need we need exciting things. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Man, I think um I think that about like wraps up our show. I think that'll do us for this week, yeah. Oh, all right. Okay. Um <laughs> Well, in the meantime, while you're waiting for our next episode, you can find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We are at GWBB Podcast. Um, you can email us, GWBBpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Podcast. Or if you don't want to be a monthly subscriber to our Patreon, you can buy us a coffee on our Ko-Fi, K-O-F-I slash Podcast. And um, that's that. Go look up some Julia Child videos. You won't regret it. Look up Dan Aykroyd's SNL sketch. And uh, peace out, witches. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty and much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.